0: So hello everyone and thank you for joining Every Moment is a Choice. My name is Erica Behel and this is a podcast for people who are looking to understand their own unique courage. I talk with people who have inspired me with the choices they've made in both in their career and in their personal lives. All right. Good morning, and welcome, everyone. Uh, My name is Erica Behel, and this is Every Moment Is a Choice, where leaders share the stories behind the choices that they make that impact their leadership, their teams, and the world. I am delighted today to have Yasmin Hatter, and she is joining me today from her home. She's also in Singapore, but we're doing this by Zoom. I wish we could do this in person, actually, uh, but she's a busy lady, and. Uh, Yasmine, how are you today? I am feeling so excited. So, Yasmine and I met um, probably about six months ago, and I was doing a keynote speaking training program. This is one of the things I I wanted to branch out a little bit and try something new. And we had expert facilitators come in and teach us the cohort that I was in, and Yasmine was one of the facilitators and she shared with us a lot about persuasive storytelling and understanding the audience. And the one thing that stood out to me, even 6 months later I can still remember her saying to us, the key thing is just get started. You're going to write a shitty first draft and you have to be okay with that. And I thought, wow, and I had been thinking about my keynote for so long and and just hemming and hawing and thinking about what am I going to write and wanting it to be perfect. And she really provided that little kick in the butt to say, you know what, you just got to get started mm-hmm. and accept that when you're starting something new, it's not going to be perfect. And that's fine because you can refine it and you can learn to tell your story even better. And so I was so excited to have her on this podcast because I think that the, the concept of shitty first draft, it doesn't just apply to keynote speaking. It applies to a lot of things in life yeah. and trying new things and just branching out and being uncomfortable. And I think that's such an important choice to make. And Yasmin is here today with us. She's like I said, she's a busy lady. She was just telling me her whole next month is booked out with, uh, you know, training programs and and things that she's doing for her clients. So I want to tell you a little bit about Yasmin before we get started. So Yasmin, um, she is a I would describe it as a serial entrepreneur. She has launched a lot of companies, a lot of businesses. Yasmine is currently the lead researcher and CEO of Sales Story Method, uh, which is a company that advises both Fortune 500 companies as well as entrepreneurs on how to use sales psychology uh, and storytelling to get their ideas across and to sell better. She is also a TEDx speaker. She is a keynote speaker. She's an investor. Uh, she's launched several initiatives related to causes that mean a lot to her including women's empowerment and climate change. She's even a game creator, which we might talk about at some point. Um, There's little this lady hasn't done. Uh, She's an adventurer. She's an explorer. I've seen her at the sailing club, so I know she's out there sailing sometimes as well. Basically, this is a lady with a lot of stories to tell. So I'm super happy to have her here. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you for having me, Erica. Happy to be here as well. As I was reading through all your all the things you've done, I keep thinking, wow, how did this? How did Yasmin get started at this? Tell me, let's start off with, you know, your childhood. What were you like as a kid? Were you the one with the lemonade stand on the street corner selling from a young age?
1: No, very far from it. So um, I'm half Egyptian, half Singaporean. And uh, I grew up in actually in Saudi Arabia. So I went to, not only that, I went to a British school and it became quite evident that I was not like everyone else. Um, most of the kids came from one country. I came from two countries. I would go to Singapore. My family would say, oh, you're Egyptian. I go to Egypt. My family would say, oh, you're Singaporean. So I learned from a very young age when I couldn't be able to like articulate what was going on that something was wrong. And I didn't understand what was going on. So in the end, what happened was I just became quiet. Because if I didn't speak, then I wouldn't be noticed and nothing would be wrong with me. Um, so for me, what I am today is so far from childhood <laughs> me. Like I was not the girl, like thinking about how to make money or all those things. I was just like really reserved. But then what happened is when I was 14, um, a life lesson happened. My dad lost mm-hmm. his job. And when my dad lost his job. All of a sudden, like money became quite tight. And my mom realized that I had a lot of hobbies, like I was painting and so forth. And she didn't want to tell me that they couldn't afford to pay for the painting lessons because they couldn't. So she was like, you've gone through two years of training. If you want to continue, you have to pay for yourself. And like, I didn't really understand what she meant by that. But I liked painting so much that I thought, okay, like, how do I do that? And she was like, you have to sell your paintings. And it became like, I didn't really think it that was hard because like it was uncomfortable because I didn't like people and I didn't like to speak to people and, and ask them for stuff. But at the same time, I liked painting so much more that because I had a, a, something that was so much more compelling, then I had a choice to change. Was it natural? No. Was it comfortable? No. But in the end of the day, like I had something that I wanted more than what I did not want.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. So you wanted it more than the fear of having to go out and sell. Yeah. Interesting. So how did you sell your first paintings? Did you tell a story? Did I tell a story? Um, I
1: think you have to put in mind that at the time I was, I think I was like 13, 14. So that already in itself is a story, you know, like, oh, she's making paintings and she's selling her paintings. Um, so the first couple of paintings that I sold actually went off to one of like my mom's friends. She had come over and she looked at the painting. And she really liked it. And I'm like, oh, I really like it too. They're like, But I can make you another one and I can sell it for you. And that's when I got my first client. But then I realized, obviously, like my mom's friend was limited in supply. because They don't have that many coming over to the house. But what I did discover is that At the time, a lot of of my people at school were like dating people and like having a girlfriend, boyfriend was a really big thing. And buying them a birthday gift was a really big thing for them. And finding something that was unique and special was a very big thing. So I sold a couple of like paintings of like swans interconnected. It was like all these really cute things that like was really romantic. So then I discovered that was my uh, customer base. But then I realized that actually the paintings were actually easier to sell in exhibitions. So I did um, a couple of exhibitions that were in a group of my classmates. Everyone was like in their 40s. And I was like, okay. And I remember the first painting sold an exhibition. I got so emotional because I wasn't there to put the pricing. So my mom just put a pricing and it got sold. It was the first painting sold. Mm-hmm. And I was, like, not comfortable with the price that it was sold. Like, I would rather have kept the painting than to sell it at that price point. And I was crying. And I was like, but you made money. You know, like, you're paying for, like, an, another
0: class. And I was like, <gasps> um,
1: but that was really interesting.
0: So <laughs> I, I find that so funny. So you knew your worth even then?
1: So I knew my worth. I just, like, that painting was, so when you're when an artist, what happens is at the very beginning, you learn different styles. Yeah. any skill that you learn, whether it's speaking, whether it's you know, uh, accounting. Actually, that's a bad example. <laughs> whether it's speaking, um, whether it's negotiation, whatever it is, you're gonna go and learn like the fundamentals, and like there's a, like even sailing, you gotta learn the fundamentals of these things, and then eventually you you create your own style, but you cannot create your own style unless you understand the dynamics of how it works. So when I learning how to paint, I had to learn how to paint the brush stroke, the different kinds of things. I was using like patchwork, all sorts of things to learn patterns and so forth. But then eventually I made my own style. I was using mixed media. I used plaster from the wall. I used toothpicks and like newspaper. And it was a really unique piece that was mine. Mm -hmm. So when I became a piece that was mine, it had a different connection to me than like painting, for example, an
0: apple. Yeah.
1: Like painting an apple was just like the basic of oil painting. But like when I made my first mixed media, that was my unique style. And yeah. at the price point that it was sold, at was just so like for all the effort and all the years, it just did not make any sense to me at that price point.
0: Yeah. This is so, this is a lesson that's so interesting to me on um, pricing, putting a value on your work if you're a business owner. Um, and understanding how the it's part of it's partially probably your customer base and how much they're willing to pay, but also how much you're willing to sell for. That's a that's a really interesting concept to actually start off with. So did you study when you went on from being a 13, 14 year old selling paintings? Um, did you study business and in university? Did you No. Okay.
1: I I never wanted to be in business. I like Mm.
0: I went to university, I didn't realize it was like I didn't think it was
1: for me. Like I was so reserved, like. It's not, I'm not that ideal image of an entrepreneur. Like my little brother is that ideal image. My little brother Mm -hmm. was selling Pokemon cards. He was (laughs) like, you know, like making cassette tapes and selling cassette tapes for people. Um, He was hosting events. I had nothing. I just like sold some paintings and I went to the painting class. So I studied university, I studied psychology. the childhood psychology because I thought something was wrong with me I thought like it's like I didn't look the same I didn't sound the same I was like I, everyone kept telling me I was different so I'm like clearly something's wrong uh and communication because I was really unaffected and unimpactful and like getting my point across I was so quiet and I was like mm. if I learned some fundamentals like with painting then I could get better like everyone can get better if you learn the foundations of it um, so it's funny that today I teach those two things, but at the time mm-hmm. I had no idea that they were even linked. because even with psychology at the time, my dad was like telling me, you know, I grew up in the Middle East. It's like, you want to work with people who are crazy? Um, because therapists were not seen as somebody who was like a profession. Like today it's much more normalized. Yeah. At the time it was like, you want to work with people who are crazy?
0: Go get a real degree. So I did the, the double degree for that reason. Right. Right. So, following partially what you loved and partially what you thought, um, what you thought could make money.
1: I think it was. All, I, I think I like them both. I just think mm. like um, the the important part of business is to realize what would the market actually pay for. And mm. the reality was in the Middle East, the market pays for more marketing and communication skills than they would mm. pay for a psychologist. So you you have to realize like it's not just because I want to go ahead and sell painting and sell painting. I I still had to go and learn. I had to find a buyer group. I had to go ahead. I had to find people who were willing to spend. Like obviously, for example, like students, they had a limited budget. So like I couldn't, for example, charge them a price point that was way bigger. So there's some basic market fundamentals that you have to learn. Um, And I kind of learned them by trial and error just because I didn't really
0: know. And I would say as someone who, when I was a kid, I never sold anything. I just had my head in the books all the time. Yeah. It is so interesting to hear how you approach these things of like, well, I had it in my mind that I thought I could sell these paintings, but then I needed to learn, you know, how to, how to paint, how to, how to find my market, how to do all these things and kind of thinking about the whole structure behind it. But what strikes me is that you, did you ever think this is a bad idea? Did you ever just think I just need to learn these things and then I can do it?
1: No, I, I don't have that choice. It was Mm. my mom basically said, "It's like if you don't like pay for the classes, you can't go." Yeah, it was a very clear thing. And the first sale was just by luck, right? Yeah, it was like someone said, "Oh, I like these paintings." I was I was obsessed with unicorns, so I had all these kind of crazy unicorns. And the painting she bought was a unicorn upside down on the moon. It's like it was amazing, like a like a fourteen year old kid, right? But really beautiful and. um and she wanted it because she also likes unicorns too. So it was, it was first find people who were just interested in that thing. But when I sold it to my classmates, I had to change it because yeah. they weren't buying what I made. They were buying what they wanted, and there's a very big distinction in terms of what you have when you have it. But I didn't know that on day one. I learned that, you know, through someone asking, "Can you something customized for me?" I'm like, "Sure." Like, what do you want? And they gave me a photo, and I painted that photo but obviously in my style, but I would never have like thought about that. I didn't realize if someone asked you for a customized product, you could actually sell it. And that's what the easiest sale is. They'll mm-hmm. tell you what they want. You make it for them, not the highest margin, but it's a great first sale. And you get started with that.
0: Good advice. Good advice. So you are in, you were studying um, child psychology and communication in university. What did you do After you graduated from university, did you have a, did you have a kind of a traditional uh, first job in marketing or some type of corporate role? I think I would take it back to university because when I was Mm -hmm. in university, um, I joined a student club called Isaac, which Mm -hmm.
1: develops young leaders. And it was in that club that really um, built my confidence. So I had one of the like the club leaders who kept on like seeing potential in me. I don't know why. And he kept on like pushing me to do things. And each time I was doing a bigger and bigger thing. And because again, like what was pulling me was more than what what I was afraid of. I was like, okay. So initially I organized the first uh, national conference. And the first I actually went to Ghana for like a convention. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then I organized the first national conference. And then I had uh, a role of national learning manager And then I had the role of regional program manager. So it was really like, and because it was a student run thing, the stakes didn't feel that high. But if I look at it now, like I was responsible in the national level for profit and loss. We're a nonprofit. Like we actually had to do reporting. But at the time it just felt like, oh yeah, like this thing that all my friends are doing and we all hang out together. Um, So that really built a lot of like, in terms of my character, in terms of getting really uncomfortable consistently, because every year was a different kind of role. So when I got into my corporate job, um, I came to Singapore, started working in events. um, And I didn't, I didn't look for a job intentionally even, because what happened was my dad had passed away when I was in university. Mm. That was also another pivotal chapter in my life. And my dad lived a very well life. He lived a good life. And I remember it when he was sick, uh, the movie The Bucket List came out. Mm-hmm. And when it came out, I asked him, Puppy, what do you want to do? And he answered with four words. He said, I've done it all. Mm. And it, I didn't understand that for a very long time. I was like, well, just tell me the goddamn answer. Like, why are you making it complicated for me? Um, so that also led me to like, think, like, okay, if I was going to die tomorrow... Like, could I say those words? And I couldn't because I had so many other fears and so many things that was leading the show that I made more important than what I actually wanted. So then when that happened, by coincidence of the universe, my auntie, my dad's sister who lives in Singapore, even though she's Egyptian, my uncle got sick. So I came to Singapore to help her out because she took to my dad when he got sick. and. Because of that, I got here. And after a while, I was like, I should get a job. So I applied for jobs online and I got the first one. I I didn't even like think about like what I wanted. It was more like I went for three interviews. I picked the highest paying job. I didn't really know how to pick. Um, It was an event management. And I did that for the oil and gas industry. But then it was a very cutthroat environment in terms of people were leaving every Friday. So like there would be like Monday, new joiners. Friday, people were like the buy drinks. Yeah. Um, then I, I left and I ended up working in the oil and gas just because I was already in the oil and gas industry. It yeah. was not really like thought out or like, I was so clear about it at the very beginning.
0: So interesting. So you came back to Singapore, um, and started working in events management, and oil and gas. I mean, choosing a job because it's the highest paying one is probably not a bad thing when you're, were you like 20 something at the time? Oh, right? 21. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah good advice for young, uh, people coming up. I think so. I feel like, <laughs> like if
1: I had had someone like a parent or like to ask you some of these questions, um, I would do it very differently. I think it was mm. like, now it all makes sense, but I also think like, but well, what do you want to build and like ask some questions that are fundamental? Uh, what kind of skill do you enjoy? What is your area that you enjoy doing? And I think those things, could have given a lot of perspective, but you know, whatever, like everything happens the way it was supposed to happen. So I'm okay with it. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I don't always say that the highest pay is the best mm-hmm. because it's also in terms of the right leader, this could mm-hmm. learn,
0: but I think that's more actually important than getting the highest pay,
1: um, yeah. than just doing that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's very interesting. I mean, if you, you just look- Kind of listed some things that you would have thought about if you could go back to your twenty-one-year-old self. Are those the things you would ask yourself? Um, I'm really happy with the path I took. It may have been a messy one, but I'm I'm still happy with it.
1: But like I know that when I have a kid, I'm going to ask them these questions. I'm going to help them just have that perspective. Um, and that's why, like I, like one of the things I started to pick up when I was like 23 was just in always investing in coaches. And I think having someone to be that soundboard to ask you those questions is so beautiful. Um, And that's also how to shortcut your learning curve to get things done. And some people don't do that and they do the hard way. And it's okay. Like, I just find that like 21-year-old me had figured out the way it was supposed to happen and and did it the best that she could. And and I'm here because I was 21-year-old me. So I'm very grateful for her. um, Yeah. Completely.
0: And that's such a fantastic, uh, attitude to have is that we can't go back and change the past, of course. Right. So we have to accept the choices that we've made and, and where they got us today. And we always have that choice you know, the, our, our tree of possible choices is extending out in front of us, you Mm -hmm. know, how we, how we take our life from here. So really interesting, um, that you talk about, um, investing in coaches and people who could give you some type of, um, either feedback or just be a mirror, um, when you're trying to figure yourself out and everything, um, Yasmin, yes, I mean, you have some causes that are very close to your heart. You know, I I know you've um, worked in some women's empowerment. Um, you've talked even about uh, a mountain bike challenge that you did. Um, and what what kind of what's your motivation for doing this type of activity? These initiatives that have an impact on many others
1: people need help and if you can help them because you are luckier financially you're luckier education wise you have privilege in that perspective then there's ways to make things better and when I was younger my mom would always drag us to go and volunteer um and like she would drag us to like the cancer hospital for children which is really so sad because I was going there when I was 12 13. And I was also a kid. And you see these people who come from the villages all the way to Cairo. And they're in these rooms with 10 beds. And it's such sad conditions. And whenever you ask them, like, I hope your kid gets better. And they all, it was incredible. No matter where they're, like no matter whether Christian or Muslim, they will always say these words called Alhamdulillah, which means thank God. And I think like it taught me that like, there's some level of grace in this world. And the more that we do things like that, not only do we feel better, but we also make the world a bit better. Um, And I think with the mountain bike race, I was just inspired. There were these four girls who went before us called the Chain Reaction Project. And I was so miserable in my job. Like I was working in the oil and gas industry. I had one of the most, actually the only horrific boss that would make me cry in the bathroom every single week. And I wanted to quit. And my auntie was like, you're not going to be that kind of person who quits on things when it gets hard. Because mm-hmm. sometimes you have to learn to go through it even when it's hard. There's an element you should leave, but there's an element you should also stay. So I'm like, okay, if, I'm not gonna, if I can't leave, what can I create to replace that feeling of satisfaction and joy? So I did that mountain bike racing. We did the training. We did the fundraising. Like I raised the equivalent of my one-year salary in that charity. And wow. it was like, oh, if I can do that, like, then what else can I do in the world? So I think it's always a choice for us to kind of look back and to see what we care about. For me, the economics always matter because I know the difference a life can have when you have money coming in, when you have money coming in to feed yourself, to educate yourself, Mm -hmm. the power of those things. So all the causes are always around economic empowerment. Like my team or last day, we, we enabled hundreds of ladies to learn how to weave so they could go ahead and make money in the villages for themselves. Um, even now, like even after that, I was really big on Kiva and giving to all these microloans. Right now, I moved over to what called v one g one and they have so many different things. But for me, the economic empowerment is the cause that I love the most just because I have been on the receiving end. I'm not always having money. Yeah. And realizing what it's like, even when I was in working, and like I would have months where I would be like, you know, below, and I didn't understand how credit cards work. And I was like, I just assumed you could spend the money. Um, it's also an element of financial education around that. But the skill to learn how to never feel that way is even the work I do today, because that's how yeah. much it aligns to my values and what's important for me. So even teaching people how to sell, it's not just how to sell for like selling sake, it's because teaching them how to have options. No matter where they want to go. And to live a life that is in alignment to what they care about, to live a life that's an alignment to what matters for them that will make them really be the best for themselves.
0: So amazing. I love it. And um when you are, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that you're now advising, you know, senior business leaders, entrepreneurs themselves. What what do they ask you? I mean, when you are when you are talking about this and, and persuasive storytelling for sales and everything, what is, what is the most frequent question you get from them? So when I
1: work with teams and leaders, um, mm-hmm. I look at it as that everyone can learn the skill. And most people think that the skill is not learnable, but actually it's a learnable skill. Like if you look back at even my old version, there's like, I don't think I could do this stuff. And I think what's important is for us to realize when we're looking at Snoop for the first time, we go through phases. And the first phase that we're going through is when we are doubting ourselves. So it's not really a common question, but it's like they think something is wrong with them and nothing is wrong with them. They're just in a different state of somebody else. So if you're at the very beginning, you're in a lot of doubt mode and that's fine because that really is where you're questioning a lot. Like, can I do this? Am I capable Is something wrong with me? And then we graduate to really learn some skills that we can go ahead and practice and then in the last phase is for them to be more impactful and to make the way we communicate not just the way we want to communicate but receiver centric what is happening to our listener so for example if you're in a corporate job and you're feeling really stuck and you're thinking oh like i'm terrible you might be on level 1 of your journey and that's cool and you have to learn some skills to help you get out of it if you for example are like feeling good but something's a bit off And you might have to master level two to be even more impactful and more effective. So I think they don't ask me the common question, but it's more a sentiment of like, why am I not good? And what's wrong with me? And nothing is wrong with you. You might not be aware about where you are. And you might be comparing yourself to somebody else who may be on a different level of different journey. I think something is wrong with you. Nothing's wrong with you. <laughs> You're yeah. just an experienced version of somebody else who's been doing it a bit longer.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's so true because we often think that there is, you know, why is everybody else achieving happiness or achieving something else in their career, and it's not happening for me. Um, so, if you had, if you had a, a friend who was, say, 35, 40 in a corporate job, and you, you know, you went out for drinks with them, and they're just complaining and saying. I'm stuck here. You know, I have a family to support. I can't, even if I want to do something else, I can't really do it because I have a, you know, I have responsibilities and everything. Um, what, what would you tell them to, to try to get them out of that rut?
1: I think before you even take action, you have to know what you want. And that's some really hard digging questions that people avoid. Instead what most people do is they compare and they think, Oh, I want more money, but for what I want to have, I want to have that position, but for what? And And I want this lifestyle, but do you really want it? Or do you want it because everyone else around you wants it? And I think asking that question of turning like, what do you want is a very simple question. And most people will say, oh, I just don't know. But if they don't know how to say it, then the question should be, what don't you want? And I know that for me, when I asked myself that question, when I was 20 something, it was like, I didn't want to be in an environment, a toxic boss. Mm -hmm. And I I was living that every day, every, every, every moment. Um, I didn't want to be in an environment where I wasn't like was impacting in a positive way. I didn't want certain things, so that actually helped me get very clear what I didn't want, and I could reverse it and have clarity about what I wanted. Then the next part, once you know what you want, and if you don't know how to do that, you, you go and get help. You go and do programs, you read books, you go and figure that out. And then the next part of that is to realize that what is like blocking from what you want to where you are. And that's where a lot of the work that I do is around the unspoken narrative, because it's oftentimes not the capability gap. It's an internal narrative gap Mm. where it's like, I'm a procrastinator, or I'm not that kind of person, or I am whatever the I am is. And that ripple effect is really what's possible to people. But essentially, the first starting point is always knowing where do you want to go? Because yeah. if you're not even sure, then maybe you're in the wrong car or in the wrong boat, in the wrong direction. You have to choose your final destination at the beginning. Yeah.
0: And that's something I think it it takes some people a long time to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say for myself, I mean, I am I quit my job at 45 and I'm still figuring out what I want to do with the rest of my life. But I think that's, it's probably never too late to do so. And I think the point to realize is like people tell me, oh, I'm so sorry that your
1: dad, you know, passed away stringing age. It was such a blessing. Like people have to go through a wake up call for them to ask these life questions. You had to get sick. You had to yeah. get physically sick to be like, Erica, am I on the right path for me? And yeah. what's really beautiful is this question will come up over and over again. I still ask this question to myself. And now like my vision is a bit bigger, but that is also because I'm asking like, oh, what else do I want to do? And what kind of impact do I want to create? And that's why it will always evolve. And we are, it's al- we're allowed to evolve. Like when I was 23, my life dreams travel around the world. I did that. At 29, I was miserable. I was like, I want to have the, <laughs> the same people. As well as like, I have a sport to do every single weekend. I can do it over and over again. So it's fine. You can adjust ch- your course as much times as you want. But just choose a course and work towards that. And then just later
0: on. As you
1: want and need to, as well.
0: You can also realize that you may try something for a while and then decide it's not for you anymore. You know, you could try a sport, you could try uh, painting, you could try something that you, is meaningful at a certain point in your life, but it doesn't have to be something you're locked into for the rest of your life. You always have the choice to then evolve, like you said, and and try something new. And that's why, like for
1: example, when I work with. Um, entrepreneurs specifically, they're so obsessed about getting it right. I'm just like, you're not going to get it right. Yeah. You're going to have clients that you hate and until you work with them. You're not going to know you should work with them anymore. And so forth. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so you, you know, you've done so much and I, I was wondering, cause when you talk about, you always have like a bucket list, what, it, what is still on there that you haven't done that you'd like to do? Um, it's
1: interesting because although I have a list, I'm at a point in my life that if I was going to die, I would actually be okay. And I think that state is more important than actually the list. It's the, 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 like waking up in the morning and realizing I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. And it feels good to do all those things. Um, but in terms of like the things that are there is uh, I want to impact lots of people. Like I, before it was like, a couple thousand. Now it's millions. So that's just a whole different level uh, of playing that I thought I wanted to do earlier on. Um, and then having that, like also that conviction that's going to
0: happen is also something that's really beautiful as well. If they've decided, okay, I can write a different story for myself. Um, I can do something. What are the, what are the first steps in terms of, you know, getting some of those skills or some of that practice? Well, I think the
1: first step is to actually even before that Mm -hmm. is to kind of see where your beliefs and be wonky, right? So if you believe that I'm in a stable environment, the reality is today, there is so much more cyclical businesses and change than ever before. So the idea of having a singular career that we had seen beforehand is actually not possible at all. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the reality is you have to sit with that and understand that before you even get started. Because if you believe I need to have this job and have this paycheck, that is the most unstable thing. There was a research that was done by uh, some HR firm that said in the US, one out of four, one out of four people would be a freelancer by 2025. That just shows you how the market is changing. So this whole mm-hmm. idea of like, I have a stable career might be perhaps a wrong way of looking at the world. If you look yeah. at, for example, even this year in the tech industry, uh, more than 400 people around the world lost their jobs. Like Meta had 100,000 like, within a week. Mm-hmm. And you would imagine, like you wouldn't see those numbers, but they were and huge numbers. So if you already believe that, you might already have to think about Is that story a correct story for you to believe? Yep. Now, the second thing is if you let go of that story, that one career, one job situation is the only way for me, then we can discuss where the gap is. Now, the gap may be that you're not in the marketplace seen as someone who has something that's special or unique for what the market needs. It doesn't make a difference what you do, whether you're doing engineering or whether you're doing sales, whether you're doing whatever it is. You need to see, first of all, how can you be A, the most value-adding person in that space, or B, you have your money working for you so that if you want to leave, you can leave. Those are actually two different skill sets. And where people have a hard time is when they don't know how to make the money work for them. So they find themselves in their forties in massive debt, living way above their means and then feeling stuck in this trap that they created for themselves. And then B, the other option is that they're not actually the most value adding in their environments, so they stop learning. And then they also feel stuck because they feel stuck because they created this other prison for themselves. So what's beautiful about both those options is we can change them. There's, for example, like when I was learning my personal finance, I was re- listening to like Dave Ramsey, um, very basic, but like within a book, I got the point. I was just like, it's not working. My numbers are not working out for me. So a lot of my fear and anxiety became because of number one, I didn't know what, what my situation, like my yeah. money was, was not growing for me. Now I have just a very basic strategy that I do but it makes me feel certain that I'm actually okay. The number two thing is I actually am building the skill set to be more and more value adding in the marketplace that I get paid more and more each year because I'm constantly learning new things. Whether that's sailing and learning the idea of resilience through learning how to sail and discovering when you're on the water, the wind is not there, you are stuck, you just have to deal with it. Whether it's learning, for example, um, the skills around trauma and how trauma affects us, right? There's there's different Mm -hmm. skills to learn. There's no right or wrong. Go where you want to go, but realize that you're always having two different lines in your career. Yep. Is the money working for you? And are you generating more assets for your household, for yourself each and every single year?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And those options are really great options to focus on, right? Because then if get even like a third option looking for another job or a freelance, get those two things in place first and then think about other options afterwards.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's something I have, I've been asked a lot recently is because I've taken a year off of paid work, a lot of people have said, "Wow, you're very lucky to be able to do that. I would never be able to have the financial resources to do that. And I don't, I don't deny that there's a certain level of privilege involved there. I had, you know, a very good corporate role and everything, but also I, I think that people's perception of what is enough money is very subjective. And while I was making like decent money, there were people making a lot more money than me that always said, you know, if I lost my job next month, I would be in trouble. I'd have to sell selling stuff because they lived, um, a little bit more extravagantly. Right. So there's a lot of subjectivity around how can I, how can I make my money work for me to the level and be, and be happy with what I have. I think that's maybe another element of it.
1: I'll give you an example. Um, one of my ex clients was like, when we did the financial stuff together, Because for me, sales, you have to learn the financial stuff first or else you cannot sell effectively. You're going to have a really hard time doing that. And uh, she was telling me about how her partner is a director level in a big uh, multinational. And his equal in the company, they went over to his house. And she's like, "Yes, ma'am. I don't understand. They spent two months of his salary on a couch. And I was like, we could do that too, but... I'm like, yeah. That's why he will never leave. He will always have anxiety and stress because he's living in a different bucket. Yeah. And it may not be worth it for his final vision because he doesn't have a clear idea of where he wants to go. Yeah. But like, I don't. Like, I took also a sabbatical time as well. But I also made money. Like, I also saved money. I also did not buy designer stuff. Like, I did not buy designer bags. Think of a month of your salary. I was living very differently. So you have to realize that what is your
0: path is your path. There's not right mm-hmm. a wrong path. And then you operate off of that as well. Yeah. So true. So we talked about um, learning skill sets and never to stop learning is always good advice. You know, whether you are um, a leader who has been doing the same thing for 20 years, you should always be learning um, something new. What, what do you think are some of the Top skill sets. You talked a little bit about you know trends in the workplace with freelancing and and how things are changing. If you were to say, listen, uh, p- people obviously have their own strengths and their own interests, but some of the important skills that you see in the in the marketplace.
1: Yeah. So for me, I think the key thing is to realize that because of the internet, we actually have so many options, and. I think a skill that everyone needs to learn and understand is how to use it to our favor, and whether it's learning how it works, whether it's learning where it should be hanging out—that's one thing. The second skill that I think is fundamentally never going to be not impactful is learning how to communicate. Mm -hmm. You know Warren Buffett when he was like talking about what has made him successful, he actually went to like a Dale Carnegie class back in the seventies or something. And it's like learning how to communicate and learning that if you cannot get your point across to someone, you're gonna feel very, very stuck. And the third thing is in terms of how do we get open to constantly learning and application? Because the part that people do, they learn, they don't apply. And if you're not able to bridge that little gap of applying and being a doer, not just a learner, you're going to get very, very stuck.
0: Yep. I love that doer, not just a learner. Yeah. I think the fourth one, I haven't added this
1: as well, sorry. Uh, And then -hmm. the fourth one I would add is also being a better listener.
0: Yeah. So crucial. Um, Whether you're a leader or not, I mean, being a good listener is is such an important skill now. Those are four really enlightening and very good things to to start brushing up on for most people. I'm going to ask you a final question. And this is what you would like to leave behind. So how would you like people to remember Yasmin?
1: Great question, actually. So for me, it's just like as someone who's made them realize that more is possible. And as a human race, we have so much potential and there is a lot of times a lot of seeds of doubt that is being planted. But if more people realize that they can actually be the light, they can actually create, they can do more things, and the world will be a better place. Because the solution that we have to solve the world problems already exists. Yep. People haven't had the courage to go ahead and lead and to apply. And that's the part that I find, if I could help contribute to that, then I've done a wonderful contribution in this world.
0: That would be an amazing legacy to leave behind. Thank you, Yasmin, for joining me. And for all of our listeners who are interested in reaching out to you or um, contacting Sales Story Method, um, how, how can we reach, reach out to you? So I'm most active on LinkedIn, and
1: I just started getting on, Twi- on TikTok. So nice. uh, I'm getting more and more comfortable making videos. And if you go there, you will see my shitty first drafts in action. <laughs> Perfect. Now. They will be much better. But right now, things all pretty suck and I'm okay with that.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for talking to me today. All right.